0: Amen. What a great reality that we do have that Jesus, being fully human and yet fully God, took our place to take on the divine punishment that we were owed, and yet in love he took it for us. Let us now go in prayer before him. Uh, Please be seated. Please bow with me. Father, as we think about the words of the song that we just sang, that grace is ours. Lord, I pray that this church would just soak in that for a moment, that we would realize the amazing gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ, that where we deserve punishment and condemnation, you have given us grace. Oh, sweet grace, what marvelous grace we have. And Lord, I pray that we would never take that grace for granted. And Lord, it's because of your word that we can know who you are and what grace is and how that very characteristic flows out of you. And Lord, it's hard not to think about on a day like today, 505 years ago, of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door because of that very realization that grace was his through Christ alone. And so, Lord, we want to just simply praise you this morning for the things that were discovered and rooted out of your word in light of the Reformation. Father, we praise you because we just need scripture alone. All we need is found in your word for life and for salvation. We can look to your word, your special revelation to us, so that we might know what we can do and who we can place our trust in for salvation. And as we think about who we can put our trust in for salvation, we praise you for Christ alone. There's nothing that we need to do, there's nothing that we need to accomplish, but yet in Christ alone, he has done everything for us. He has lived a life we could not live. He died a death we deserved. He is raised back to life, sitting at your hand now, God. And if we place our trust in that, we are yours. God, what a great thing that Christ alone is, that we don't have to come to you with a sacrifice, with a ritual, with anything, but we can come boasting in him and him alone. And, Lord, we pray that for this church that would be the case as well, that we boast only in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we praise you for faith alone because we are justified by faith alone. We don't need to pray certain prayers. We don't need to do certain things in order to be justified before your eyes. All we have to do is put our whole trust in what you've done for us. Father, we praise you for the gift of faith that you give to your children. Lord, we pray that we would exercise that faith greatly in this church. And Father, as I prayed earlier, we thank you and praise you for grace alone that where we deserve all sorts of punishment, all sorts of condemnation, you give us grace alone. And it is by your free grace that we can come to you in repentance and faith, knowing that if we truly trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf in faith, you will give us grace. What a sweet message that the gospel has for us, that grace is ours in Christ alone through faith alone. And Lord, we know that all these things ultimately point to the good hand, to the sovereign hand that gave all those things. To you, Father, to you be the glory alone. We praise you because you deserve all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our adoration. And so, Lord, we pray that this church would have its mind set on your glory alone. Whether it's handing out candy at a trunk or treat, whether it's singing, whether it's praying, whether it's hearing your word proclaimed, whether it's going through a search process as a church, Lord, we pray that our minds would be fixed on your glory alone and that you would get the praise. Nothing in us, Lord, but all to you. Father, we are astounded and amazed at those truths that we found in the Reformation. And Lord, we pray that we would be a church that clings closely to those truths because ultimately, They come from the good God that gave them to us. So, Lord, help us to walk in light of what the Reformation taught us. God, we thank you for those men that illumined people's eyes to the truth of Scripture. And we pray that that would be the same for us as well. And, Lord, as we think about the mission of the Reformation, to make God's name be gloriously known to all the earth. We pray that that would be the heartbeat of this church as well, that we would desire to make your name known in places where it is dark and in places where there is shadow. And so this morning, Father, we pray for Pine Ridge Reservation. Father, we thank you for all the people that live at the reservation. We thank you because they are made in your image that we have a duty, we have an A great joy to bring them the gospel, to help them know the light and the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for a couple of people that are doing good ministry down there. Father, I thank you so much for Chris and Angie Carey and for the work of Ashley Down Ministry and what they're doing down there to help people understand who Jesus is and to do Bible studies and to come alongside those who are especially hurting. Father, we thank you for Chris and Angie. Father, we thank you for Matt Haddon and for Creators Fellowship and for the ministry that they're doing down there, especially with students. We pray, Lord, that we would see abundant fruit in that. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know how we can support and partner with them. But ultimately, God, we pray that you would use these ministries to proclaim your gospel far and wide, that there might be revival in not just our region, but, Father, at Pine Ridge. Father, we pray that we would see many, people at Pine Ridge, come to know who Jesus Christ is as Lord and Savior through those ministries and through our efforts as well. And we pray that we would do that for your glory alone. God, as we think about your glory alone, we pray that we would come into the preaching of your word with such a mindset, with such a desperation, of wanting to see your glory. Father, I'm so reminded every time that we hear the word preached, it's like when Moses longed and was desperate to see God's glory. And He, God took him and put him in the place of the rock so that he could see that glory. Father, we long to see your glory. So hide us in the rock. Hide us in Jesus Christ. Father, send your Holy Spirit down on those who do not yet know you and open their eyes to see the great grace that people can have in you. Father, for your children, we pray that we would be edified, that we would be totally encountered with who you are in our text this morning. Go before us. Holy Spirit, fill us more and more so that we may live lives, that we may talk, that we may think, that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of your glory. That would be to the praise of your name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we'll be beginning in verse 12 of Philippians 3. And while you're doing so, and while I'm doing so, I'm going to tell you a really interesting story that I found this week. So, Luis Carlos de Noronha Cabral de Camara was an amazing person. I know it's a mouthful, but we'll call him Luis for short. He was a Portuguese aristocrat who boasted all sorts of riches, all sorts of prominence and power. I mean, I I want you guys to just listen to what he owned in his estate. He owned a 12-room apartment. I didn't know they made apartments that big uh, in Lisbon, Portugal. He owned a a house in in a beautiful area north of Lisbon. He had a couple of healthy bank accounts, a luxury car, and two motorbikes. This guy, he had it all. He was single. He was tied to nothing and not anything in, in the world. And he had all the ability to live a happy and luxurious and awesome life. And yet, Luis was not a happy man at all. He had no friends to speak of, and he had a really odd upbringing, and no family or no children at all. He was described as eccentric and was known to drink a little too much and too often. He died in 2007 alone with no real legacy to leave behind. Except, upon his death, Luis's attorney contacted 70 people to divvy out his estate. Now, I'm sure you're wondering with what I just listed, how does that divide up into 70 equal pieces? But let me just go on and tell you kind of what else happened. These 70 people were all completely random and totally unrelated to Luis. And he actually picked them out out of a Lisbon phone book. That's how he found out about them. Just by picking them out at random in a phone book with his attorney. And he told his attorney, upon my death, call these 70 people, And whoever accepts first will get my estate. Just that simple, that easy. As you can imagine, most of the people, whenever they got contacted initially by the attorney, they thought, this is just a scam, so click hanging up the phone. But obviously, there were a few that took up this offer, and it was totally life-changing to them. They inherited this amazing apartment, this amazing house, a couple of bank accounts, some motorbikes. It was a pretty awesome deal, right? This whole idea of people coming in to a luxurious inheritance and into an unknown inheritance, it's really amazing. And honestly, I would just encourage you to Google, after the service at some point in time, just Google unknown inheritances, and you will find all sorts of amazing stories. It was one of my favorite parts of research this week in my sermon. But you're going to find that the list, it just goes on and on and on. And I think the reason that I find a story like Luisa's so amazing is because, truthfully, I kind of want that to happen to me. Like, I just happened to be listed in somebody's will, and they're like, hey, have a million dollars. And it's totally unknown to me. I have no idea who that person is. I, probably all of us, right, would want to be in that kind of situation where we see, wow, somebody just listed their whole estate to me, and I had no idea who they are. That long-lost relative, that's what makes stories like that so good. It would be incredible, ultimately, to end up possessing something that I had no idea I would eventually take ownership of. Well, this morning in our text in Philippians 3, we're going to learn that actually in Christ, we have a sure and known inheritance of sorts that Jesus has for us. And all we have to do is take hold of that inheritance. But before we get into our text this morning, and before I kind of elaborate on this idea, I think it's important that we just quickly recap what's been going on in the book of Philippians up to this point. So this letter, this book of Philippians, it's it's working as a letter of update and, and kind of a, a prayer list of sorts for the church in Philippi. And it's from the Apostle Paul, the one who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. But right now Paul is imprisoned and he's writing to this church to say, Hey, don't worry about me. Everything is working out for God's good and for my glory. Excuse me, let's do the opposite. For God's glory and for my good. And much of Paul's letter is exhorting them in light of their worry to live the gospel lives, to partner with him in the gospel, despite his current situation. In the last chapter, chapter 2, Paul is urging the church in Philippi to model Jesus' humility and to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And last week, as Josh so brilliantly preached, the concluding thought, the concluding bottom line, as he said, was this. That Paul wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know him in an intimate and deep way. He wanted his total joy to be in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for him. And as Paul talks about knowing Christ as he reflects on this, he thinks of any righteousness that would be of his own and and then he says, that's all trash now. And the only thing I boast in is in knowing Christ. Everything else is rubbish and light of who Christ is, that's his heart, that's his desire for himself. And now, this morning in our text, Paul looks at the Philippian church and says, not only do I want to know Christ, but I want you all to know Christ as well. And that's going to be the theme, the tenor of the text this morning. So read with me along in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, and you can find that on page 981 in your blue pew Bibles below you. I think this text is amazing. The main idea of this text is this. And you should see that on the top of your handout Obtain your kingdom citizenship because Jesus has already attained you. A friend of mine, whenever I was texting him about this main idea, he said, Hey, I think it'd be better if you would have said, Obtain your kingdom citizenship because Jesus already owns you. But that's the idea we're going to be talking about this morning. The fact that Jesus owns us. For those of us who have placed our faith in him, he owns us. holds us with his sovereign and loving hand. And now, because of that, we are to take hold of this inheritance, to obtain this thing that he has promised for us if we are in him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text in four different points. And I think there are four points that Paul shows us this is how you can attain this kingdom citizenship. So four points just very quickly, and I'll, I'll repeat them. Don't worry about that. First, he tells us we need to be striving for the prize. And then two, we need to grow in maturity. Then we need to be imitating the faithful and remembering our future glory. So for all my note takers, don't worry. We're going to go back to that first point. We're going to be talking about first what Paul says. This is how we obtain this kingdom citizenship. The first thing that we do is we all need to be striving for the prize, which we find in verses 12 through 14. And as we look at those first three verses in 12 through 14, the first thing that really sticks out is this idea, this this notion of spiritual perfection. I mean, do you see that there in verse 12? Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But But Paul is very, very careful to show that this perfection that he's talking about, which is knowing Christ, which is knowing him to the full extent that he was talking about last week, Whenever he talks about that, he, he's very careful to say to this church, I have not even grasped this yet. I have not grasped this spiritual perfection of knowing Jesus truly as my Lord and Savior and having him as my utmost joy. Even though he just listed all these things that he could be righteous in and says, Those are rubbish. I only count gain as Jesus Christ. He still says, I'm not quite there yet. And I think it's a very sweet thing for Paul to do, especially to a church that feels so tempted to leave the faith because of persecution, because of all sorts of different things going on. And as we get into the passage a little later, it will not be something that he can attain until the resurrection of the body. This whole idea of being spiritually perfect, knowing Christ fully in his joy, is something that Paul can't get to until he's resurrected with Christ. But what I do find interesting is the clear recognition that Paul must claim that he has not obtained this perfection of knowing Christ. He wants to make it clear he's not obtained that yet. This recognition of not being there yet, it kind of plays to what we were talking about earlier in chapter 3. He could think of all these accolades, he could think of all these things that he could boast in, and yet he's not there yet. He says, "I, I count my lineage, I count who I was affiliated with. I count any righteousness of my own as garbage and only claim Christ. And yet, he still does not feel like he's there yet. He's still striving. He could think of all the churches he's planted, and he could think of all the people that he's led to Christ, and yet, Paul still felt like he wasn't there yet, like he had not attained it. He was still striving, still working, as he was talking about in chapter 2. I think there's something to be said here. Think about it for a moment. If a person like Paul, who had done all this amazing gospel work, felt like that he was not there yet, friends, how much more should we probably feel that same tension of striving after Christ, continuing to grow in the righteousness and continuing to grow in the holiness and the joy that Christ sets before us in our salvation? We ought to press on, friends. If Paul felt that way, we surely should feel that way. And it's not as if his pressing on toward Christ. It's not that it's a baseless appeal to to himself or to others. I think what we see are two big reasons why Paul continued to strive for the prize, as he talks about, of Christ Jesus. There are two big reasons why he still felt like he needed to do that. And the first, I think, is that he recognized in verse 12 that Christ had made Paul his own. And I think that's the most important thing is he is considering how he ought to strive and why he ought to strive. He said, Christ has made me his own. There's a sense and a recognition that the life that Paul now lives, it's not Paul's anymore. It's Jesus's. This life totally belongs to Jesus, and Paul is still working out that for himself. Jesus had done everything necessary for Paul to be saved, and now the result is that Jesus' lordship, his rule, now determined Paul's course of action in his life. This goes back to that understanding in chapter 2 that I believe I talked about, that God had worked a great salvation inwardly, and now that works outwardly. Paul was still outworking what was going on inwardly of him, and he's pressing on these Philippian believers to do the same as well. And now, in light of this reality that Christ has made me his own and he's now working in me, Paul forgets and he leaves behind any righteousness of his own. He leaves behind any of his own devices, any of his own mission, all for the sake of Christ. And he strains and works hard for the righteousness that is in Jesus and for Jesus' mission in his life. I don't think whenever he says in uh, three I think it's yeah, 13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I don't think Paul is just saying, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna forget it, leave it in the past, and leave it there. I'm not gonna think about it anymore. I, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. I don't think he just simply forgets and, and you know, not slows down, as, as the famous Reliant K song says. I think he says, in light of all this, I've reconciled it, I've thought about it. All these things that I've tried to strain for in righteousness, I've, I've thought about those in light of Christ. I've observed those. I've analyzed those. And now in light of that, I leave those things behind. I put those things behind me and strain toward the righteousness that is found in Christ Jesus. He's reconciled all those things in his past, even the laying of the coats of his, at his feet of some friend of his eventually that would be murdered for the sake of sharing the gospel. He's reconciled that in Christ and presses on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. A part of reconciling our past friends, as Paul instructs us, is looking at those things and figuring out how we move forward in light of Christ's reconciliation. It's not an easy thing by any means. And for Paul, obviously, a saint, it's taken him a long time to figure out how he ought to do that. And I think it's a sweet reminder for us as well Friends, we may be tempted to linger on things in our past, and we may be ashamed of those things, and yet we can reconcile those things in Christ. It takes a lot of work, but we can put those in Christ's hands and strain toward his righteousness and not our own. And now, in light of reconciling those things, he says, I strive toward this upward call, a mission, if you will, in Christ Jesus. So what is this mission for Paul? Paul? What is this upward call that he's talking about here? I think verse 14, I think it answers that for us and gives us the second reason that Paul strived for the upward prize. He says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this mission, this goal, this prize of the upward call in Jesus, what is that? What does that mean, Paul? Do you have just, like, this special anointing on your life? You get to do all these amazing things, plant churches, see all these people saved because of your ministry? Is that what that means? I mean, kind of, yes. That is what that means specifically for his life. We can't answer yes. That that would be his upward call. But I think he's talking about a more universal call, a more universal call for all Christians to strive for an upward prize in Christ Jesus. What Paul is getting at here is not simply his earthly mission of making Jesus Christ known to the Gentiles. No, what Paul is getting at here is the prize of every Christian. It's the prize of finally becoming like Christ. It's righteousness that is truly and rooted in Christ. The prize of the culmination of his pressing on. The prize of knowing that he's given all his effort, all of his might toward this end goal and then finally attaining it. It's a prize that all Christians are called to, a striving after knowing Christ, knowing him fully. The prize, brothers and sisters, for us then is knowing Christ in eternity, experiencing him in our perfection whenever he glorifies us. I think the best way to kind of understand what Paul is getting at here because I can tell that this is a little bit of a, how do we reconcile like doing this in the present and yet that being a future reality? I think the best way that we can reconcile this is, is thinking about uh, the illusion here that he's making, this striving, this running after like a marathon runner. And obviously I'm not a runner by any means of the sort, but I think this is the idea that Paul is getting at here. It, it's, it's this idea, a striving Toward the end goal. For many marathon runners, the last few miles of a marathon apparently is the hardest thing that they do. How many people have ran a marathon in here? Anybody? Yeah. For those of you that have ran one, I'm assuming that the last few miles were the hardest. I don't know. I've never ran one. You could pray. Maybe that I do someday. But uh, I'm not going to make any plans on it yet. But what I've heard is that for those marathon runners, those last two or three miles are really difficult. They see the finish line. They're straining after it. And it just feels step after step after step. They feel the physical and emotional fatigue of what's going on. And then that's where the recognition of like, oh, my legs really do hurt. This race is getting really hard to run. You see the finish line, and yet your physical capacities begin to wear down. And like the marathon runner that Paul is alluding to here, Paul is urging the church in Philippi to strain, to press on, to strive for the prize despite. spite the physical ailment despite the persecution despite all the things that are going on strive strain after that prize which is knowing Christ fully in the resurrection he wants them to finish because he knows that the prize at the end of it all is perfect unity with god and that's what he himself is pressing on to and that's what he's exhorting this church to press on to as well and so in light of that prize of being in perfect unity with god Paul gives them some very straightforward and practical training tips on how to do this. And he begins by telling them the second point of our sermon today, which is they need to be growing in maturity. The first way that they strive toward that prize, the way they get there is by growing in maturity, which I think we find in verses 15 through 16. Paul says in verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I'm going to read that again and kind of let this soak in on you for a moment. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Truthfully, I I think if we read that verse out of context, and honestly in context as well, I think it's a really humorous verse. Because Paul is basically saying this. The way that we grow in maturity and the way that we recognize that we need to grow in maturity is by recognizing that we're not fully mature. All of us are immature at some level, and if you think that you're immature in some area of your life, don't worry. God will reveal that to you and make sure that you know you're immature about it. God is in the business of maturing his children and wants to make sure that you know, hey, if there's a short point in your faith, in your walk, he's going to point that out to you. I think it's a really funny thing. The first recognition is that we aren't mature, and yet if we know that we're not mature, Christ will point that out, and he'll make sure that we grow in that area. I think we can glean two applications from Paul in these first two verses, excuse me, in verses 15 and 16. I think the first is that a mark of maturity is a recognition that you're not there yet. I want to say that one more time. A mark of maturity is realizing and not being proud of the fact that you're not there yet. I think we all need to hear this. We are not there yet. And if any of us think otherwise, I've got some news for you here in a minute. Verse 15 obviously plays into what Paul has been getting at with himself in verses 12 and 13. Paul is not yet perfect in knowing Jesus to the full extent that he wants to know with him. And so he needs to strive for that. He needs to grow in maturity. And his striving, his desire to know Christ more and more and to experience him fully— This is a sign of maturity. So Paul tells all in the church in Philippi to be the same as him and to continue to strive in knowing Christ, to signify their maturity in Christ. And while I think it is somewhat funny, I do think that it's reassuring for the Christian that if we're not mature in any area of our life, as it says in verse 15, God will reveal that to you also. God will make sure that you are in the business of maturing if you are in Christ. This harkens back to when Paul said that he was sure that if God began a good work in somebody, God will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. For Paul and for all Christians, the life that we are called to is one of steady and probably really slow growth of maturity. And for Paul, no Christian is excluded from maturing in Christ. No Christian is excluded from growing up in Christ. I wonder for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder if this is your mentality as well. Do you still feel like there's a need for you to grow? Do you still feel like you need to be more mature? Do you still feel like you need to take ownership of your faith more and more? Or do you feel the opposite? As I just said, this call to maturity, it's universal for all Christians. And Lord willing, for my friends that are here that are in Christ, Lord willing, you are more mature than whenever you first placed your faith in Christ. Lord willing, we'll get to see Audrey Bates in 20 years and see how she's matured in Christ after making this public declaration of faith in Christ. Lord willing, we'll see that maturity happen. And Lord willing, that's happened in your life as well. Whether you're eight Or 80, the call is to mature in Christ, to strive for the upward prize by growing in grace in him. And I think Paul may be alluding to a real danger in thinking that you have arrived in full maturity in Jesus before you're with him in eternity. I think he's really careful to make that known. You will never be fully mature in Christ until you are with him in eternity And I'm sure we can all think back or think of now of how foolish we were whenever we were younger. And maybe for some of you younger people in the crowd, this this, uh, illustration may lose its uh, punch on you. But for those of us that are over 18, you can probably remember a time when you were really foolish whenever you were really young. We thought we knew everything and and we needed no instruction or no help. We need no growth whenever we are teenagers, right? And, and we may actually know some adults like that now, and they're really annoying that think, oh, I don't need to grow, I don't need to grow up at all. But anyway, this call to remember that we're not there yet, it reminds me of a time in my life when my dad told me at an Oklahoma State football game, he said, hey, we're walking to the stadium, and I see these two cones, and they've got a chain running across them. And like any good 11-year-old, I'm going to hurdle that thing, right? I'm, I'm like five foot three. I probably weigh like 160 pounds. I was a little tub uh, of lard at that point in time. And I look at that chain, and I'm like, I'm totally going to clear it. So I let go of my dad's hand. I say I was in fifth grade. I don't know what age I was. But I remember my dad distinctly warning me, do not jump over that chain. Whatever, man. And I'm running. I'm after it. And I get that chain. Oh, catches my back foot. And I scrape my hands. I scrape my knees. And not to my father's surprise, I, I failed and ended up being in a lot of pain and crying and doing all the things that— a kid would do after he scrapes his knees and hands. In many ways, that mentality that I had as a fifth grader or whatever age I was, I think that's the kind of mentality that Paul wants all Christians to avoid. A belief, that feeling like we're there, that we can clear the hurdle. Friends, it's good news to know this. You have not arrived in full maturity. You've not arrived in full maturity yet in Christ. And there's always a need to grow in Christ. That is good news for us now and today. And much like my father gently lifting me up and telling me it was going to be okay, he never even said I told you so, which I credit for him doing that. But just like my father gently lifting me from the ground and helping me clean my hands and knees because of my immaturity, your heavenly father will make sure you grow into the image of his son. Your heavenly father cares about your maturity and he will make sure that you mature in his son. That is sweet, sweet news for the believer. I think the other application that we see is that we become, more mature, we become more mature by holding fast to what we've already attained. I think Paul is simply saying here in verse 16 to believers that we will grow in Christ as we hold true and are obedient to the gospel message that has been given to us by God. The more that we hold and cherish onto the gospel, Friends, the more that that maturity is going to get worked out of us in his grace. As Josh Brown mentioned last week, one of the ways that we know Jesus more is by hearing the gospel over and over again. He compared it by saying that. Hearing the gospel over and over again is like oxygen. We need it all the time. And it's not surprising then that Paul calls them to hold true or to hold fast and becoming more confirmed to the gospel as they seek to be mature. In order to live, in order to grow, You need to breathe in and out. You need to, the gospel, all the time. We hold fast to the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. And while there are other many resources to help you mature, like good books, fellowships, small groups, accountability partners, and so on and so forth, there's a lot of good things that can help you mature. The one thing that you will need to make sure that all those things are rooted in is the gospel. Friends, our ability to be swayed by different arguments and the desires of our hearts is so strong. And the way that we combat that is by holding true to the gospel. We we hold on to those things by saying we believe in this and all of our other relationships, all those other resources they are grounded in the gospel first and foremost. As we feel like we are about to pull away in any way from not maturing We mature and we grow by nestling up and holding on to the message that gave us salvation in the first place. We know the gospel. We cling to it week after week. And this will help us obtain what Christ has already given us. By knowing and clinging, holding true to the truth of who Jesus is in our lives. Another way that we can grow in this maturity that helps us know Christ is by watching others who are doing it better than us. Which leads us to our third point, imitating the faithful. So, so far we've talked about the way that we strive for the prize is by making sure that we grow in maturity, and now he tells the believers in Philippi, we need to imitate the faithful. We find that in verses 17 through 19. So Paul now tells the church in Philippi, as they seek to know Christ more, they should imitate others like himself who are doing that well, who are striving and, and longing to know Christ more and more. I, I don't think in any way that Paul is boasting in himself whenever he says, imitate me. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think this is a refrain that he gives to those that he loves and that he cares about, and he wants to grow. He says this often to churches that need to grow up that he loves. He said this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Those people that we see Christ in their actions and speech and deeds and thoughts and way that they live, we need to imitate those faithful people. And Paul seems to be telling the church there in Philippi that their leaders, the overseers, the elders and deacons that he talks about in chapter 1, they're the ones that hopefully the church can look to as they are trying to imitate what faithful living looks like. So for the leaders of the church here, Friends, are you the kind of leader, are you the kind of follower of Jesus that you would want people to imitate? Could people imitate you? Are you available to people to be able to be followed? Are you as open as Paul is to helping people grow in maturity and toward Christ-likeness? Friends, there are so many of us in here that are even in positions of leadership now that we don't feel like we're there. I'm such an imperfect pastor And there's so many people that want to come to me and ask me about really tough things and walking in faith. And, And that means a lot to me as a pastor. I'm not there yet, though. And Lord willing, you can be able to find wisdom from not me, but from the Holy Spirit working in me. And Lord willing, you can find that from many people here in this church as well. Friend, if you don't think that you're mature in Christ and you can never help anybody, welcome to the club. It's a great place to be in. All of us are not there yet. Paul himself was not perfect, and neither are you or I. And yet we are called to help people grow in Christ. No matter what stage of your Christian life you're in, you are called to help people grow in Christ. That is really good news. It's the imperfect helping the imperfect become more perfect. It's a really sweet thing. So to my friends who feel they're weaker in their faith, I would encourage you, I want you to go find that person that you admire in the faith, and go ask them if they can help you grow in maturity. There's nothing wrong with you doing that. That doesn't show any weakness. It doesn't show any sort of vulnerability at all. It just says, hey, I want to grow in Christ. I want to grow up. Ask them if you can watch them love their family and how they go about their week, about their work. Luckily, for many of us here in this church, and I praise God for this, there are many good, faithful followers of Christ that I could gladly point you to. And I would do that in a heartbeat if you came and asked me about it. This church is richly blessed with many brothers and sisters in Christ that I would heartily recommend that you would invite into your life, that you would ask to help them, to help you grow in Christ. I was actually encouraged just this last week. Somebody came up to me and said, I really feel like I need accountability. I need to grow in these areas. Who can I go talk to? And I had like four or five names in my head that I could just give him right at the beginning. Friends, that is such a sweet gift that we have this church. So recognize, friends, if you feel that you are weak in your faith, there are many people in this church that you could go to to help you grow in Christ-likeness. I want you to notice, though, that as Paul urges us to obtain and to take hold of what Christ has given us, yes, he wants us to follow or to imitate the faithful, but he also wants us to consider and to remember the unfaithful as well. Read with me in, in verses 18 and 19 very quickly. So he says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have. in us. verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Now, within the context of this passage, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly who he's talking about here. Is he talking about the dogs that he was talking about earlier in chapter 3? Is he talking about the people that were persecuting him in, in chapter 1? I, I don't think it's that at all, but I, I think most commentators believe that this group of people that he describes here in these verses are, are, are people not within the community of Philippi. They're not in that immediate context, but they're elsewhere who are no longer walking with the Lord. There are those that Paul knew outside of the community of Philippi that were once walking faithfully with the Lord, and for whatever reason now, they're not. And perhaps maybe he is talking about people who profess Jesus as Lord within that community of Philippi, but their manner of living, it communicates the total opposite thing, that Jesus is not their Lord. In either situation, Paul calls these kind of people to, he calls these kind of people that are no longer faithful and who are ultimately displaying an opposite Response to what Christ has done for them, he calls them enemies of the cross. And Paul has told the church in Philippi before and is reminding them again to remember those individuals, to look out for them, and don't follow their example, and instead follow the example of those who have remained faithful to the call of God despite what's going on in their lives. Despite the instruction to imitate those who are faithful, the warning about those who are now enemies of the cross, it's really sobering. I feel like up to this point in the passage, it's really nice and good instruction, and then all of a sudden, watch out for people that are no longer walking with Christ. It kind of punches the air out of your stomach. Paul is grieved to tears as he makes mention of them to the church in Philippi. And I'm sure for many of us, when we read verses like this and are reminded of some We may know in the path that they're choosing, even though they claim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, that ultimately leads to destruction, as it says in verse 19. We feel that same grief. We feel that same sober reality of knowing people who claim to be walking with Christ and yet are doing the opposite thing, or people that once were zealous for Christ and don't seem to have a relationship with him at all. It's a sobering thing to think about. We are grieved by that. And rightfully so. It's a horrendous thing to watch a person who you believe to be a, devoter, a devoted follower of Jesus instead follow their own mind and their own desires that are set on earthly things. It is a sobering and horrific thing to watch. And it's even more scary, I think, to watch them sway others into their way of living. It's not just that they go on their own way, it's that, hey, come with me. That is terrifying members of South Canyon Baptist Church, we must be on the lookout for one another. I don't think Paul gave this warning just to blanket put it out there. Just remember that those people, remember those people. That's not what he's saying at all. I think he's saying be on the lookout for one another. Imitate the faithful and make sure that you are looking out for those who may be getting swayed by the same kind of living, the same kind of mentality as he described in verses 18 and 19. We can all easily slip into this kind of of living that Paul speaks of here. It's not an unloving thing to turn to your brother and sister in Christ and to warn them and to admonish them to make sure that they follow Christ, to keep their eyes on Christ. It's not an unloving thing. Warn them. Tell them that you love them. Tell them in truth. Tell them in gentleness. Tell them in grace to watch out for their living. And then come alongside of them. Don't just tell them, but come alongside of them and say, let me help you walk with Christ, as I try to imperfectly do that as well. It is loving to tell others that they are slipping and walking with Christ, but it's also more loving to make sure that you come alongside of them and take them by the hand and you follow Jesus together. That's the exhortation that Paul is saying to these Philippian believers. Walk with Christ, imitate the faithful together idleness in this area on our part, friends, it, it could lead to the destruction that Paul states in verse 19. And I think this is what John Bunyan was getting at in his book of the Pilgrim's Progress. We can be a citizen of two different places, the citizen of the celestial city where our king, Christ, is, or we can be a citizen in the city of destruction. For Paul, for the Christian, he desires that the citizenship be where Jesus is, in that celestial city where our king is. Which leads us to our last point, remembering our future glory. So what's the last way, Paul, that we obtain this kingdom citizenship? Well, we remember what's to come for us. Read with me in verses 20 and 21 very quickly. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what does Paul say the last way is that we can obtain what Jesus has already attained for us? How do we own what Jesus has already owned for us? He tells us to remember our citizenship in heaven. He tells us to remember what is promised for those who are in Christ. He says, remember, church, your future glory. I'm not sure about you all, but this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews did in, in, the, in chapter 12. Maybe this verse will remind you of this statement. He says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the writer of Hebrews and for Paul, the best way to obtain that inheritance that is so sure for the Christian is to look at Christ and to remember where He's seated and to know that you will one day be with Him there. One of the strongest ways we can endure to to obtain what we have owned in Christ Jesus is to remember Christ. It's to remember that this earth, this place, this shell that we are in right now, it's a passing thing. It's a passing thing. And we have... A better home, a better place, because that's where Jesus is. Paul tells him to look to Christ and not just look to him only, but look to where he is, because that's where you will be as well. Friends, in that home, we will have our Savior, Jesus. And he's going to give us new, resurrected, glorified, perfect bodies that will never have to deal with the physical or emotional wearing out of our day to day life. We will, as the writer of the prophecy in Isaiah says, we will mount up on eagles' wings and never grow faint. That is what is owed to the Christian if you are in Christ. You will obtain this inheritance of eternity with Christ in perfect union with him. We will one day experience in full the power that raised Christ up from the dead. Friends, do you realize that? The Holy Spirit that's in you is the same spirit that raised Christ up to the dead. And there's one day going to be a day where we experience that spirit, that community, that communion with God, even more than what Jesus did whenever he was raised up to earth. We will experience God in heaven, in perfect unity with eyes unhindered, beholding our King that saved us. Friends, we look forward to that day. Oh, what a day that will be. And yet, these realities that Paul's talking about this future glory of a resurrected body and being in perfect union in Christ, they are ours now. He says we are citizens. We have a Savior in Christ Jesus. And friends, because of that truth, we are to take hold and obtain those future promises of tomorrow so that they can strengthen us for today. We take hold of them now so that we can endure through all the suffering, all the trials that we have. Brothers and sisters, we have everything we need in Jesus, and this is why we can strive for the prize. This is why we can grow in maturity. This is why we can imitate the faithful is because of our future glory with our present reality saving in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has attained and done all things, we can obtain all things in him. Friend, you might be here today with no sort of hope for tomorrow. You might be here tired and weary of all this life has given you. And I would invite you, as Paul is saying here, to consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. He lived the life that you cannot live. He died the death that you deserved and is raised back to life, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he invites you now to come to him in faith and to take hold of the future promise of perfect union with him in eternity. You can have hope for tomorrow today, why would you not come to him? Well, I'm sure that like our friend Luis had a slight bit of charity in his heart when he picked those 70 people out of the phone book. Friends, that pales in comparison to the love that our Heavenly Father has for those who place their hope and their eternity in his hands. Friends, that is where we ought to point to. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our sure hope. And Lord, we recognize that there is no earthly inheritance, no earthly thing that will ever compare to who you are. So Lord, help us to strive for that future. Help us to grow in maturity. Help us to imitate others and help us to be people that would be imitated as we grow in Christ. And ultimately, Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we might obtain the inheritance of as kingdom citizens. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.